Is it too bright? Okay, in front of the audience. You don't mind being in a photo, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming to the National Library on this lovely Canberra brisk spring afternoon. Uh, my name is Aileen Weir. I'm the Director of Digital Business here at the National Library. And as we begin this afternoon, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Well, we're in for an exciting afternoon tonight, today. Since its launch in 2014, the Saturday paper has been a fresh voice in the coverage of culture, current affairs and Australian politics, featuring some of Australia's best writers. Both the Saturday paper and its sister publication, The Monthly, have been great friends to the National Library over the last few years, providing valuable support in promoting our exhibitions, events and fundraising appeals. We are delighted that they are our media partner for our forthcoming exhibition, Dombrovskis, Journeys into the Wild, which opens to the public next Thursday. And I hope many of you will be able to come and have a look at that. Today's event is our first event partnership with the Saturday paper, and we hope it's not the last. Our host this afternoon, I think, will probably need little introduction to most of you in the audience, is Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper since 2016. Karen was formerly the Chief Political Correspondent and Canberra Bureau Chief for SBS Television and is a regular radio and TV commentator. In conversation with Karen today is... Clover Moore, Lord Mayor of Sydney, to discuss on cities and responsibility. Clover has led the development and implementation of the city's internationally renowned long-term plan, Sustainable Sydney 2030. This plan has three major objectives to be green, global and connected, and includes ambitious targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Please join me in welcoming Karen Middleton and Clover Moore to the stage. Thank you very much and welcome. Thanks for coming on another Saturday afternoon. There's a lot of competition. Floriard started, so it's very nice to see you all here. Thank you again. Um, We've got about an hour to chat today. Many of you will have been to our conversations before. So what I'll aim to do is talk with Clover for about 40 minutes and save some time for questions before we wrap up. So if you have a burning question, uh, my request is to hang on to it and we'll have the opportunity for further conversation afterwards. And then we will run a, an edited transcript, edited for, um, for space, in next Saturday's Saturday paper. So you'll have a prompt on the, the first part of the conversation at least 
next weekend. I'd like to welcome again Clovis. Thanks, Thank thanks, you Kat. so much for coming. We've got a huge crowd. It's great. Yeah. Um, Thank you for coming. <laughs> I wanted to ask you first, we, you know, we here in Canberra where we're having this conversation uh, have, we don't have local government. We've only got the territory level government and then of course, of course the federal government. So what's the role of a Lord Mayor as you see it? What's your main mission in your job in Sydney? Well, I've got to say I'm really envious of Andrew Barr being both the state and local government together and it enables him to get on and do much more. Um, so, you know, I, I think we're over-governed in Australia, three tiers of government for our small population, and that's a bit of a frustration for a city leader because a lot of what I want to do is really state responsibility and the people think I have to do it anyway and then when it's not done, they blame me when right. it should be, in fact, be the state. Um, so uh, the, role of, the role of a city leader, the role of, of a Lord Mayor, I, I see it as someone who, um, who sets the long-term plan has the long-term vision, consults with the community about that, um, does the research to achieve what, what, what is needed and then makes the commitments and then does the work. And uh, I, I think the thing about city leaders, about local government leaders is they're at the coalface and they get on and do stuff. And you're Lord Mayor, not Lady Mayoress. Why, why the Lord Mayor? Oh, it's, a, it's a, an interesting title, isn't it, for a woman <laughs> in the 21st century? <laughs> Um, it's historic. I've, it's it's just the title that's given to capital cities. Oh, thank you. And and I can be a right honourable too, like the prime minister, but I don't use that. Oh, I see. <laughs> Sorry about the disco lights. But I'm sure they'll calm down. <laughs> uh, um, what sort of city do you want Sydney to be? I mean, you're dealing not only with the iconic inner city and the, and the harbour, but you're dealing with the outer suburbs and issues of growth, which I want to come to. What? Well, I, I'm as as the city lord mayor, I'm responsible for. Um, for the inner area, um, it's it's only an area of 25 square kilometres, uh, and it has a population, a residential population of about 200,000. But we look after a million people every day because we're the global city of Australia, um, and we have workers and visitors in our city every day. And so we we have these two really important roles, um, and and and. We have a leadership role in local government too for the rest of the metropolitan area, uh, and, and and we do things for the metropolitan area too. You know, our, our, our events and 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 the the research we do and 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 the actions we take we share with those other local governments too. So it is a it is an important leadership role. And how are you how do you intersect with the cities? Um, jurisdictionally around sort of Parramatta, for example, around that inner city? Do you find you have conflicting priorities or are you trying to have an overview for the greater Sydney? Well, the mayors did try to have an overview for the metropolitan area and we had a mayors forum and then we had a state government that stepped in and said they were going to amalgamate local government um, and there was a lot of opposition to this because there was never any... any, any um, defensible justification given for wanting to do this and uh, it can be a very destructive thing. Um, and so the last two premiers have gone ahead with this proposal to amalgamate um, and in the end this premier said some months ago, well, those councils that have successfully taken us to court and won will leave there and the others have been amalgamated, so it's a real mess now. You've got tiny councils and much bigger ones. So what... What my role is as, as the City of Sydney leader is to bring all those newly elected mayors, and they haven't been finalised yet, in to talk about working together cooperatively on the urban issues of, 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 of our city 
for the future and, um, and, and, and setting up ways we can work together. We've all already been doing this nominally because the City of Sydney is a member of the Rockefeller's 100 Resilient Cities. And um, that's about um, cities working to address... Uh, to, to, that's about cities working to become more resilient. So that's resilient in terms of, of acute crisis, the sorts of things that happen with climate change, and cities also being resilient in terms of dealing with chronic problems like housing affordability, congestion, all the th population increases. So with that work, we've committed as, as a city leader to work with all those other metropolitan areas. So our CEO has been working with their general managers. And so we will now all come together and, and, and talk about that work that we've been doing while they've all been dealing with their amalgamation. So we do work for the whole metropolitan area, but um, I am responsible for the inner area. And you mentioned that intersection between the different levels of government, which presumably is a frustration at times, probably frequently. Yes. <laughs> how, how do you manage that? I mean, I think of a project, for example, like the West Connects uh, roadway project, which is a state government project, which doesn't necessarily have the universal support of local governments um, between Western Sydney and the inner city. How do you, as Lord Mayor, manage that intersection with the state government if you don't see eye to eye on such a major project with such an impact on, on your city? Well, it, it'd be very beneficial for the city if federal, state and local government could work together cooperatively on, on outcomes. But that doesn't happen a lot. Um, and I think that's a real pity. And in terms, I don't know if you've heard of West Connects, but it's the biggest road project in the world currently. Uh, and um, it was a Tony Abbott project. He had two other projects in, in, in Perth and, um, and, and, and in Melbourne, and they've been abandoned, fortunately for those cities. But West Connects hasn't been abandoned in Sydney. Uh, and um, it started off as a project that was going to cost 10 million. It's now up to 17 million. And when you assess what is going to be needed for the other extensions and, that have been announced and for all the exits and entrances to this motor, toll road project, um, it's going to be costing 50 billion. And um, it's, it's something that um, is, is really uh, misleading the West. It's promoted as something that will help people of the Western Sydney get into the city. Um, and yet, they're going to be forced onto private tollways, and those tolls are going to go up by 4% for the next 43 years. And the people of that area are not high-income people, and um, they're the roads they're going to be forced onto. And then all that traffic is going to be forced into the city of Sydney, the global city, which is very constrained, as you'd appreciate, because we've got the harbour on three sides. Um, and one of our biggest problems in the city is congestion, and that's currently costing us six billion a year. Um, and that's why we're getting we're constructing light rail in the city centre now to reduce the number of cars that are coming coming into the city. And that has in fact been very successful. But what West Connects is going to do is direct another 120,000 vehicles into our city every day, and it's going to be um, devastating. You know, our wonderful villages that we've, we've, we've established in recent years. Sydney has become a very livable city. The population has dramatically increased because of that. No longer do families move out. If that is if they can afford to stay, they do, um, because it has become a very livable city. And, and we pride ourselves on our walkable streets and our streets that have cycleways and um, on our the good design in our residential development and in our wonderful parks and the facilities we've provided. And that's going to be trashed by seven-lane highways going through the centre of all of this. And that's in the 21st century, and that's when we're meant to be addressing accelerating climate change. So for all of those reasons, it's a terrible project, and we're fighting it. 
Do you have any prospect of, of it not going ahead? Though? Well, uh, we're up to stage three. Stage one has, has been just about completed. Stage two is only 30% completed. Stage three is, is, is a stage called the St Peter's Interchange, and that's located next to our beautiful Sydney Park, where we've spent about 23 million in the last 10 years, um, and it's a major regional park for the surrounding area, which has dramatically increased in population with a great deal of, of, of urban development. Um, and that interchange is going to take up 27 hectares. It's going to be an interchange that'll be 38 metres high. It'll have trucks coming off it at, at 100 kilometres an hour, right into our, our, our beautiful suburbs and into Green Square. And Green Square is a project that we've been working on um, since 2004. It's been on the planning agenda of the state since 1995. It is, is coming to completion now. We're spending um, 1.3 billion on infrastructure. We're spending 450 million on, on infrastructure in the town centre. Um, that's it, for people who don't know. That's that area between the airport it and, is. and Redfern along Southern Cross Drive and it, down it South Darling Street. You, you'll have already seen when you come to Sydney those towers along South Darling Street are part of it. Um, it it's, a, it's a project I inherited, and it's very dense, and it's turning the former industrial area into this major urban renewal area. And so, how do you cope with that? Um, well, we've coped with it by saying all the, all the development has to have design excellence. We've got to have very good facilities. We're providing 40 parks and really beautiful community facilities. We've preserved the corridor for light rail. So it all should be coming together really well. And already 30,000 people have moved in. There'll be 60,000 by 2030. Do you think we want West Connects with seven-lane highways travelling at 70 k's an hour going past? The answer's no. So... So if we can stop stage three, it will mean that um, the interchange that will pour traffic into the global city, into the CBD, won't go ahead, won't need to go ahead, because we've seen that there's an alternative, much better route to connect. They want to connect the M4 and the M5, and you can do that through a road that only needs intersection changes, which actually lead traffic to the port and the airport, which was the original purpose of West Connects. Currently, they're dumping it all at St Peter's. And they haven't even planned for that final stage to the airport. So it's bad in every possible way. And, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's, they've set up a private consortium to run it. And the Independent Commission of Corruption can't get information about it. The Parliament can't get information about it. Two Auditor-Generals, federal and state, have been critical of it. And that's what we're dealing with. It's really bad. So where, at what point do you have to say, well, there's a likelihood this is going to go ahead. We've got to start planning around this to mitigate the problems? I mean, you're obviously fighting it and you're hoping you, you can... We're doing both. So what, what sort of planning are you doing to mitigate... How can you mitigate the problem of that influx of traffic? Well, you know, you do... You look at what, what um, traffic management you can introduce into the surrounding areas to stop cars coming in. Um, but what, what I'm doing mainly at the moment is talking to a whole range of people, including particularly developers and business community who are really... They've invested a lot of money in the CBD and they've invested a lot of money into Green Square and they can see how bad this is. And so I'm hoping that there will be some opportunity of perhaps stopping Stage 3. That's where we're at. You'll have to just watch this space. <laughs> um, in a city but like I think it would be very bad for Sydney if it goes ahead. You talked about being hemmed in by the harbour, but you, it's also, as Australia is concerned in terms of development. Well, it's constraining us. It's not hemming us in. It's a very beautiful harbour. Sure, indeed. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean that to be in any way derogatory. <laughs> we, we love a harbour like that. Um, what, what, um, 
What role does Heritage play trying to plan a modern city of Sydney mm. in a city, looking mm. into the future when you've got heritage considerations, mm. you've got old relative to other cities in Australia, mm. you've got old mm. infrastructure that you obviously want to mm. preserve and maintain, mm. you've got green space. How do you go about planning for the future and, and future um, mm. congestion issues, that kind of thing, mm. and urban design, with that, to be, that being preserved? I think this was first addressed in the 1970s when um, George Clark did Sydney's first strategic plan. And I, I knew George very well, and really on his deathbed, he said to me, you will do the next strategic plan for Sydney. And, you know, I'd just been elected Lord Mayor at that time, and, uh, and of course, that's what we had planned to do. And I think our, our long-term visionary work, Sustainable Sydney 2030, has, 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 has addressed that. Um, and, you know, what our most recent planning uh, piece of work has been a new central Sydney plan for the CBD area, which is where the heritage... Um, concerns principally are um, and our, our planners did that work and they because the city needs to grow as well in terms of providing another 145,000 jobs over the coming decade uh, and given the constraints we have um, you know it was originally a Victorian city uh, we, we did this new plan and our, our planners worked <coughs> very secretly, really, because they didn't want developers to know which sites would be able to increase in floor space because they'd be all buying them up. Right. So we had to do this work very carefully. And the work was done looking at what was really important about Sydney, and of course it is the harbour, and it, of course it's our green spaces, and that new plan had to ensure that any future uh, increased development would not impact on Hyde Park, on Martin Place, on, on our major public spaces, which is so important in, in, in a city like Sydney, with, you know, we've got a great climate and those public spaces are really very important. So, uh, and the other constraint we have as well as the harbour is that we're close to the airport, which is unfortunate, but we are, and so we have av aviation constraints. Yeah. So there are only certain sites where we could look at increasing the height to enable that growth to occur. And we did that work very carefully and we've done it now. And, and that work is about protecting those important public spaces um, identifying and 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 um, keeping the important heritage work, uh, and <coughs> allowing for that increase on certain sites um, where there won't be serious impacts. How much difference will a future second airport for Sydney make to the inner city and the existing airport? Is it only going to absorb future growth and, and not take pressure off your existing airport, or are you hoping it will take some? It should pressure? it should be complementary. The great thing about that airport is that it's going to provide um, a lot of jobs um, for people in the western suburbs. Um, and if it can be connected with a very fast train, it will mean that people can use that airport. Um, and um, and it, uh, we, we have really serious congestion around the existing airport. Mm. Um, not only air traffic, but um, vehicular traffic. And so the, the second airport could work in a very complementary way. But the most important thing about it, I think, it is for western suburbs getting that increased um, economic activity happening. There are a few people in Canberra who are quite keen on a very fast train to yes. Sydney too. Um, well, I think it would be a great idea. We've heard about it for a long time. <laughs> and I, we, thought, we thought about it this morning when we had to go out to Sydney Airport and wait for an hour and, and then, you know, sit around and wait when we got here. But it, it would be terrific to have. And I've, I've travelled on very fast trains in China, I've got to tell you. You don't really, really... We, we travelled at 299 kilometres an hour and it, you didn't actually feel as though you were going very fast, but no. you went right across 
the countryside. It was fantastic. But we seem to always get stuck in these mm. jurisdictional questions about mm. well, what kind of technology and then the fact that it's a long-term mm. investment that mm. requires so much money and it goes through several um, mm. election cycles and we just go round and round. Mm. How, do, how do we overcome that? Well, <laughs> I think having longer terms for, for uh, governments is one way of doing that. And one of the reforms, I, I was in the fortunate position of holding the balance of power in the 90s with John Hatton and Peter MacDonald in the New South Wales Parliament. And in order for the, the party that got the greatest number of votes to, to be able to get supply through and not have a no confidence vote, uh, motion voted against them, we negotiated this charter reform. And this charter reform was about improving the way government was run. So out of that charter, we've, we've got estimates committees, which we didn't have in New South Wales before that. We got a 10 question question time, which we didn't have before that. The, you know, government used to talk out question time in one or two questions. We got whistleblower legislation. We got um, in, uh, increased uh, powers for the Ombudsman and the Auditor General. Uh, and, and, and one of the reforms I argued very hard for was a four year fixed term. So you could give governments two lots of four years, eight years, and, and deal with the very thing you're talking about. How do you make those long term decisions and how do you ensure that they happen? And, you know, when you think about our federal parliament, um, they have three-year terms. They talk about what they're going to do for the first year and then probably for the second and third years they, talk, they, they work on getting re-elected, mm. you know, and, and we don't see a lot being done. And we don't see the important things being done that should be happening. So I think governments that are any good should be able to get at least two terms. And that gives them eight years and that means they can do some long-term planning and get things done. You also, though, sometimes find opposition um, from the community to long-term planning that sometimes in a community and you've got an absolutely terrible government you don't want them to be they, there for well, too long well they can't see people mm. sometimes can't see value in, in, in investing huge amounts of money particularly mm. if budget is tight which it so frequently mm. is in a project that's really got a long-term vision and we've seen some examples of that one in particular in the act with the light rail project which has been extremely controversial here mm. um with one small you know some people see it as a very narrow um point a to point b project, the government says, well, we've got a, a longer-term vision, but we haven't seen the whole of that vision yet. Um, and there, there are a lot of people who say, well, that's not going to affect me. Why am I paying for it? How do you respond to those sorts of sentiments within the City of Sydney, but generally? Because it's not just governments having trouble getting their act together. Sometimes people are saying, we don't really want this. I, again, it's, long, it's looking at the long-term long plan. Um, and I, I had a similar experience in Sydney. Um, we, we're not responsible for, for the trains and the buses, but we are responsible for the streets and we are responsible for helping people get around. And so one of the things that I was loving very hard about, actually, mainly from the business community and the executives, was bike lanes because they didn't want to cycle to work on dangerous roads, spend a full day in the office um, and then um, have to cycle home on a dangerous road or sit in a car. So... Um, I, I, we, I consulted with residents, I consulted with all of the community, and we designed a 200-kilometre bike network, um, and we uh, proposed as much uh, uh, separated cycleways as we could get into our confined streets. Uh, and um, once we'd done all our research and our consultation, and I went to some very, very fiery meetings because people like to park directly outside their terrace house window in the street, um, and they didn't want a cyclist going by. Oh, we don't know uh, anything about that here. 
Um, and, you know, I argued and I argued, and, and really at the end of the day I said, look, we've all got responsibilities here, and there are three elements to how cities are contributing to climate change. One is in our commercial buildings, where we burn a lot of energy. Another is in our transport. And a third is in the lighting in our cities. And we, as a community, we have to address this. And one of the areas where we can address it is with transport. And it's much more sustainable to have people on bikes than it is in cars. And, you know, the, the number of cars you'd be able to take off the road. And then there are all those other improvements with spikes, too, in terms of having a healthier community. Um, and so I've I got to say, it was very fiery. And my CEO kept saying to me, are you sure about this? You know, because I was being really lobbied very hard. And, of course, the Daily Telegraph, the Murdoch Press, they do not like cycleways. Um, and uh, I said, it is, no, it's the right thing to be doing. And I held, you know, I was held, held the line. And um, I was also in state parliament at the time too. So that meant I had elections every two years for the state and then for... And I was going for a state election... And we were doing our first separated cycleway was in Burke Street, and the, one of the biggest polling booths was Burke Street Public School, and we held the election, and guess what? I got my top vote in Burke Street Public School, and I was really, really pleased about that. And, you know, as soon as we got those separated cycle lanes in, um, people used them, and people loved them, and they've been so successful. And to see all these people using them, and to see parents cycling to school... I mean, I know you will have wonderful cycling facilities here in Canberra, and that's the envy of the world. But that's not the story in Sydney. But to see people cycling in Sydney with their children to their school is just really magic. And that's been very successful. But um, it's been really, really controversial and people really, really haven't wanted it. But they've, in the end, accepted the greatest good for the greatest number. And it is about that. And I think with your light... Just as an onlooker of Canberra, your, it's a first, I would consider it as the first section of your light rail network. And I think you're such a dependent... Uh, my husband grew up in Canberra, so I know a lot about Canberra. Um, and, uh, you know, you're so dependent on cars we here. We are fond of cars, are we not? Um, and I know you have great, great cycleways, but, you know, perhaps for older people who, who can no longer drive, it would be a really liberating to have public transport. And I think it would be liberating <laughs> for young people. And I think it's the future. You know, we're, we're living in the era of, of having to reduce our ecological footprint. Australia has the largest ecological footprint of, of any country in the OECD. We also have the highest rate of obesity. They are shameful facts. And, it's, you know, it's incumbent upon us all to be doing something about it, and transport is one of those areas. But public transport's never going to give us the flexibility that having our own no. car does, no. does it? How do we come to terms with that, then, in the future? Well, I think we'll have to come to terms with it ourselves, won't we? Um, I, I think Canberra is a, a different situation, perhaps, from a city like Sydney, um, with, our, with our, you know, in our inner area, our dense population. But... Um, you know, we, we will all perhaps have to do inconvenient things because we're concerned about the future of the planet. If we don't sort out the future of the planet, I think everything else becomes academic. And we have to sort out the future of the planet because we only have three years, really. Otherwise, we're going to be looking at, 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 um, at four rather than 1.5 degrees in terms of climate change. And the sorts of, of, of weather patterns we've been seeing around the world just very recently will be the common factor if we don't take the action we all need to take. What sort of a role can a city play in, in um, mitigating against climate change, mm. as soon as you've brought that up? You know, you're a city, you may not necessarily have similar views on mitigation against climate change that the federal government has or even the state government has. Can, can a city do anything much? I know you've had a recent visit from 
Christiana Figueres, who's the former head of the UN body on climate change, and Gregor Robertson, the mayor of Vancouver, yes, uh, who I gather you're in rivalry with for the greenest <laughs> greenest city in the world. Um, <laughs> but what what can a city, city by city, do that if federal governments are not in in lockstep? Um, what cities can do is probably one of the most important things because 70 to 80 percent of emissions are in our cities, and as I said, there are commercial buildings, there it's our transport, it's our lighting. And so if we can address reducing emissions in our cities, and if we can do it around the world, we can make a huge contribution to um, addressing climate change. And in fact, the, the, the Paris um, conference showed that cities could, could contribute a 40% reduction. And, and the city of Sydney is a member of the C40 climate group, and that's world cities coming together to address climate change. Um, and we meet every two years and we share, we share our knowledge and our experience and, and that's a very, very powerful group. Um, and it's absolutely incumbent on federal and state governments to work with us because we can help them so much in this reduction. It's not just about the coal-fired power stations, it's also about what we're doing in the cities. Mm. Um, and so when, when we developed Sustainable Sydney 2030, when we first had that consultation back in 2007, 97% of people in the city of Sydney told us they wanted us to address climate change. That was in 2007. And so when we developed Sustainable Sydney 2030, we made the commitment of reducing our emissions in the city by 70% by 2030. And we take that commitment very, very seriously. And it, it, we are working very hard. Already I can say we've reduced our emissions in our own operations by 26%. And right across the city, we've reduced emissions by 17%, despite the fact that we have had unprecedented growth in economically in terms of resident numbers increasing, in terms of visitors increasing, in terms of workers increasing. And so that, that is... is re and we, and we, what we do, we don't have a very cooperative federal government. It doesn't seem to have a policy. Um, the, the state is now committed to um, a 50% reduction in emissions by, by 20... Oh, no... A zero zero um, emissions by 2050, which is fantastic. They've only recently committed to that. But what we've done in, in the absence of the federal government commitment is work very closely with business. And, um, of course, they own the commercial properties in the city of Sydney. And we have a partnership called Better Buildings Partnership. It's with the owners of over 50% of the commercial property in our global city, and they're the really big ones. They're the investors, the GPTs, the AMPs. And they are partnering with us. They've agreed to our 2030 goals and because of the buildings they own and they can take, can take action and they have already reduced their emissions by 47% and they're saving themselves 30 million every year. Mm -hmm. So that is very powerful and we're working with the tenancies in all our commercial buildings. We're working with small business. We have a, 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 um, a group called the Better Building Partnership and we're working with our, 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 our stratas too in the, in, in the residential apartments. So, these are all things that are happening in cities. And, you know, if the federal government wanted to link up with us, it would be very powerful for them in terms of achieving what they've committed to achieve in Paris but are taking no action to achieve it, which is, I think, fairly shocking. I want to ask you about housing. Um, you've talked about Green Square and the, that's an urban sort of infill project. Um, we've seen the controversy around Martin Place and the homeless people in Sydney and... Um, what can be done to assist them to find permanent housing solutions. We've had a national debate about the cost of housing. It's almost impossible for young people to buy into the housing market in your city, but, it, but right across Australia. How do you tackle that, given so much 
of the policy levers. So many of the policy levers are at a, a different level of government yes. from you. What are you. What are you doing about homelessness and, and about housing costs in general? Well, I mean, one of our important roles is advocacy. And of course, we support um, what Bill Shorten has committed to doing in terms of capital gains tax and a negative gearing. I mean, that goes without question. But we're not going to get any improvement in provision of affordable housing for particularly millennials, for, for younger people, until there's a policy commitment from federal and state governments, and there isn't. The, the, the commitment so far has been keep, keep, keep um, providing supply and price will come down. Well, I've got to tell you, in the city of Sydney, we've approved $26 billion worth of development over the last decade, um, and we only have 1% of affordable housing. So there's an awful lot of housing there, but because there isn't policy from those other tiers of government, um, we don't have the, the, the affordable rental housing that we need, not only the social housing that we need for low-income people, the public housing, but also we need worker housing, the people who work in emergencies in our hospitals, work in our, our police stations, teach in our schools. They can't afford to live in Sydney now because it has become so expensive. What the City of Sydney has done is everything we're able to do as well as advocacy. We have been... The state has... Um, has allowed us to apply a affordable development levy in two areas, in Green Square and uh, Piemont Ultimo, and that's generated about a 1,000 housing units. Um, that's now affordable rental housing, and we've got about the same number probably in the pipeline, but it's a drop in the ocean when you think of the $25 billion worth of development that's occurred. What we've lobbied for and what we would like is to be able to extend that levy right across the city. That, that is one way of generating affordable housing, uh, rental housing, and we'd like to see that being applied right across the metropolitan areas to other councils. Um, you know, we, we, we have a lot of sessions like this, City Talks we call them, we have a lot of young people that come along and the millennials tell us they're, they're not absolutely committed to owning a house, but they would like to be able to rent something that's affordable and they'd like to have security of tenure. So if you had affordable housing reform from state and federal governments and you had a, security reform in terms of tenure, um, that would be, that would really contribute to, to changing the mix. And that's what, that's what we really want. We want that reform coming through. We, we um, use our development controls, we use our own land to make it available at discounted prices. We have a fund where we support, we've supported um, uh, an older uh, homeless women's project um, we've supported a, a youth housing crisis project. So we do that, but again, it's, it, it's not the comprehensive policy change that you need to get to start getting that volume of, of affordable rental housing that we need. And we, we, we need to acknowledge that, you know, not everyone's going to be a homeowner. Not everyone wants to be, but everyone wants to be able to live in the place they'd like to live and to be able to afford to pay the rent and, and live a good life, you know, as they can do in other cities. Well, it feels like inner cities of, of our big cities are becoming the preserve of, of the rich of the rich and the homeless mm. and, and well it's the rich um, and, and I think that's really shocking and I think what else is really shocking is that our state government has evicted um, people social housing people in Millers Point it was the oldest living community in Australia um, it, it was originally established as a, as a low-income community it was where the families of the maritime workers who are working down on the wharves lived and that a lot of that housing was purpose-built for them, um, and they've been evicted. They've been evicted by our state government, and um, and there are other sites that the state government has sold. You know, our state government has been on a real sale, sale binge, and um, 
And I, and I think the view is, unless you've got a high income, you have no right to live in the city, and I think that is truly shocking. Um, the, it, it's, it, it's, in terms of equity, it's shocking, but it's also in terms of having a, a city that's for everyone and a city that has that vitality of, of different groups of people and people with different levels of income. That's what all our cities should be about. Um, and low-income people shouldn't be sentenced, in the case of Sydney, to the outskirts where there's no facilities, very little transport and an impoverished um, lifestyle. What's your view of having public housing all in one area, you know, this area here and this area here? And I know in the inner west in Sydney, for example, you've got housing commission, we used to call mm. them blocks, um, and, and Millers Point was one. In the ACT mm. there have been blocks mm. of public housing that have been bulldozed and there's a change in policy now, so there'll be a distribution of public housing availability mm. across the city. What's your view about um, having people all together in one area versus distributing them across in, uh, the suburbs of the salt and pepper idea? Well, I, I've been a city representative now for, th for over 30, 30 years, and so I've represented areas in Waterloo and Redfern and Surrey Hills with high, high you know, densely populated resident uh, social housing estates. And I, and I, I know, um, I know the, those tenants and I know them very well and I meet regularly with them and I always have. Um, and we have, we have quarterly meetings and I take all the state representatives out there so they can talk to them face to face. And um, I know that on the one hand there are some really serious social problems in those estates because again there's, there's a concentration of people who have either perhaps a mental health illness or certainly a low income illness uh, situation. Mm -hmm. So there are a range of problems. On the other hand, some of those communities are really tight-knit and really supportive. They're quite and, vibrant, yeah. And, and so it's a, it's a policy now, particularly with Conservative governments, they call it salt and pepper. They think it's better if they mix low-income people with higher-income people. They think that'll be good for low-income people. And, you know, one of the public housing tenants said at one of these meetings, you know, if I live next door to a banker who got up in the morning and put on his pinstripe suit and went off to the bank, would I then be in a position where I could get up in the morning and put on a pinstripe <laughs> and go off to the bank? You know, it's, if you take that, that whole thing through to its logical um, conclusion, I, I mean, I think what we need to do is make cities fair for everyone. And I think the mix isn't bad, but I think where people want to live together in communities and show mutual support, I think it's really good. And, you know, that's what happened in Tent City and Martin Place. If you're a homeless person, you're distributed around the city of Sydney in, in, a, in a doorway... Um, on a park bench un under um, a flyover, um, particularly if you're a woman, you're vulnerable and it's quite dangerous. If you're together with a group um, of people who are mutually supportive, you're safer. And they felt very safe in Martin Place. The thing about Martin Place was that it was a real affront, and it was a affront to the Parliament, and it was a affront to the Reserve Bank. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it was a confrontation to, to society about, you know, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and this is, you know, this is where we're at. And so um, a lot of pressure was... was um, I, I don't know, you don't get Alan Jones in Canberra, but you've probably heard of him, have you? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't like it, because he had to drive up there past it to go from... He lives down at Circular Quay, and he had to drive past to go to his radio station, and he lobbied the government. So it was a real affront to Alan Jones. So the minister was going to get those people out of Tent City. It was the last thing she did, and I was really threatened by, by that. And I sought to negotiate with the spokesman for the Tent City, and, and, and they'd agreed that if family and community services would actually offer them some, 
offer them accommodation. But it wouldn't be together, it would be dispersed where it was available. Uh, and the city and the state could, put, could support a, a, what they asked for, was they called it a safe place, yeah. where they could meet and give each other mutual support. Well, then they would leave. And I'd put this to the Premier because they wanted me to use um, uh, what they called, a, well, it's a section 125 in the Act that, that says that the council can move people on, they call it a public nuisance. We'd had to do that once because a building site was going ahead and it was going to be dangerous underneath. But I wasn't going to move them on in that way. I refused to do that. And so they passed special legislation to give police the powers to do that. Um, and um, in the end, the tent city abandoned. They, they thought that that would be a very um, frightening uh, experience for the homeless people to be um, to move, be moved on by police like that. So they've been dispersed. They're now dispersed back in the city in doorways and park benches. Some have been offered accommodation. Um, but the state hasn't really been talking to me about that since then because I wouldn't do what they wanted. They wanted the people out, but they didn't want to do it. And I, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. Mm. And um, I think, you know, much better that we confront this. For me, it was just the tip of the iceberg. We've got a really serious housing crisis in Sydney. And I put to the Premier a whole number of things that we would like to see happen that would give us more long-term housing for low-income people. And I'm still waiting for a response on that. We, we think so it's about policy and it's about values. And if they, have the, <laughs> if they think that poor people shouldn't be in the city, it's very hard to get them to support initiatives that will enable poor, poorer people to be in the city, where I think they should be, have an opportunity to be. Well, I wanted to ask you about that question of values. I wonder what role the Lord Mayor has in shaping social attitudes and in being a, a social and cultural steward of the city. So we think of you as being a planner and a designer and and dealing with logistics like transport and housing. But you're also dealing with a community that you want presumably to be comfortable and happy and, and um, love each other and all of that. So how do you, what role do you play or what role do you think you have in shaping social attitudes? I mean, you're also um, custodian of the, of the biggest, most high-profile high gay community in, mm. in Australia. And obviously there's an issue around all of that at the moment. So do you see yourself as having some kind of stewardship role on social attitudes and leading, being outspoken on social attitudes as a, as a kind of cultural custodian? I, I think that is an important role um, and that, that's, um, and, it's, and it's a leadership role and, and it is speaking up for people and, and um, we do have a, a, that voluntary non-binding survey occurring about marriage equality at the moment um, and our, our community is really delighted that we've got wonderful banners in our streets, rainbow banners and another big banner with a heart and a yes. So you know where, what our position is on all of that. Um, and, and, that's, and that's got very strong support across the city, I have to say, whether it's from the business community or the residential community or our homeless community. Um, and, uh, you know, people know that we have a policy of, of inclusion and... Um, I've, I've supported, uh, for all of my political life, um, the GLBTI community. And I've, uh, that legislation that the federal parliament's rushing through now um, about stopping vilification of uh, GLBTI people during the course of this voluntary survey is based on legislation that I got through the New South Wales Parliament in 93. And they, once the, 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 vote, the, the, the survey's over in, in, across Australia, they're going to abandon that legislation Whereas we have kept that legislation in New South Wales, which means it's a crime to incite hatred against gay and lesbian people. 
and you know if someone does that, they can be taken to court and fined. So that's and and you know that legislation hasn't had to be enacted, but because it's been there, it stopped really ugly, insightful things being said by radio shock jocks, for example, which is what was happening in New South Wales before that. Sydney's also the site, obviously, of, of um, another part of our history where Captain Cook landed and the beginning of our federated nation. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing some councils in other states, particularly in Victoria, start mm -hmm. talking about, and Western Australia, start talking about Australia Day and mm -hmm. wanting to change the date. How do you, as the Lord Mayor of Sydney, manage that issue? You've got a, a view that you put forward. Are you mindful of competing competing histories almost, or competing versions of history. How do you negotiate that? Well, I think we have one history. We Europeans arrived 200 years ago. Um, the original custodians, particularly in the city of Sydney, they were there for 60,000 years beforehand, the Gadigal people, the Eora Nation. Um, and um, I think many would conclude that they perhaps looked after the land a little bit better than we have in the last couple of hundred years when we've cut down two-thirds of our forests but um, and polluted our, our, our rivers. But, you know, we... When we did Sustainable City 2030, we talked to our business community, our residential community, and we very much talked to our original community, to the, um, the descendants of the Gadigal people. And as a result of that work, we didn't change plaques on statues. What we did was um, we set up an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander advisory committee, which has been in place now for a decade. And, and they talked to us about wanting to tell the story of the Gadigal people's journey from where Philip landed through to Redfern and to do it through a series of public artworks. And so that's what we've been doing. We, we have done three public artworks now. You might have seen Tony Albert's very confronting but um, uh, uh, very moving artwork in Hyde Park near the War Memorial, which is called Yumini, uh, um, Thou Didst Let, Let, Thou Didst Let Die. It's, it's about, it's a tribute to um, black diggers who hadn't, hadn't been recognised when they came back from war at the time. In fact, they didn't get the pay and they couldn't even go to local swimming pool, many of, the, of those black diggers. So, um, and, and we're currently just uh, looking for the appropriate location for the project that we've just been working on, and this is with Aboriginal artists, and that's going to be called the uh, Monument to Eora. Um, another of those public, those, those beautiful artworks is in the block in Redfern. Um, it's a Reco Rini, artwork on, on a terrace house, which is a tribute to Pemmelway. So that's what we've done. We're telling the story their way, um, as they want us to, um, and, and we're acknowledging the importance of the history, but also the significance of their cultural, co cultural contribution to present-day Australian life, because there are some really wonderful Aboriginal artists, and I'm going to go along and see your exhibition at the National Gallery when I finish here. Yeah. And, and, Rick, and Rick Rini has a wonderful work there, apparently. Uh, no, Tony Albert has a wonderful work there. That's right. And there's a new exhibition at the uh, museum as well. It's online yes. exhibition. Um, so you're not changing plaques and taking down old Look, monuments. You're adding yeah, more. You know, again, <coughs> I, again, I think it's Australian conversation. I think the date of Australia Day should be an Australian conversation because that's about celebrating who we are in the 21st century. And, and I know for um, Aboriginal people that the current date is, is, really, is really not good for them because for them it's, their inva it's the invasion day. And um, there, there were demonstrations in Sydney quite some years ago and the, the, the result of that was they called it survival day. 
And um, that then led, led to something that we call Yarbin, which the City of Sydney's been supporting for the last 10 years. And people from around New South Wales come to Victoria Park for Yarbin. And again, it's a celebration of Aboriginal cultural, culture and music. And um, after I've done my citizenship ceremony, I go and spend time at Yarbin. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, again, we need federal leadership to talk about, you know, we're this multicultural community in the 21st century now and we have the oldest living culture. We've inherited this here and we should be able to work out as Australians today what's the most important day to celebrate who we are. And I would think many of us would agree that it probably isn't the 26th of January when, when, when Cook, when, when Philip arrived. And I have to tell you, at the last um, citizenship ceremony I did down at Circular Quay, um, after I did the ceremony, we went to look at the... Um, the, the, the exhibition that had been organised by the Australia Day Committee and it were, there's a very large warship in the harbour, there were guns going off, there were flypasts from warplanes and I thought, goodness me, is this really appropriate? <laughs> Celebrating an invasion uh, on Invasion Day for the Aboriginal community and uh, um, I, I think, I hope they're not going to be doing that again. I want to leave some time for questions, I'll come to them, but I just want to quickly ask you, when you look around Australia and overseas, where do you see cities that are a good example for, for your city and for, for us? Do you, do you see ideas in other cities in Australia that you want to draw on, either in planning and design or other, other aspects of your job? Or, and do you look further afield and see cities like Vancouver or somewhere else? Mm. What, what ideas are you taking from other places? Well, you do, and, and I, I think this is a really good thing. I think cities are working together now, um, and we share. You know, we don't think that you need to reinvent the wheel. We're all confronted with the, the same issues, climate change, population increase, um, lack of affordable housing, congestion. These are common problems around the world. So that, you know, when I've gone to Chinese cities, um, first of all, when I went to Chinese cities, when I was elected in 2004, and, and we were starting to do our work on Sustainable City 2030. I'd take our documents and I'd proudly show them and I thought, if we can influence Chinese cities, that's terrific ripple effect because they're such great contributors to, to, uh, to climate change. Um, and, and I have to say, after a few years, I'd be going to those Chinese cities and I would be shown their whole new cycle network that they'd put in in just the last year. And they're influencing you. And their last six metros that they'd just installed and their wonderful pedestrian walkways. And what was really nice for me was I went to Wuhan, which is a city of about 11 million people in a province of 60 million people, and the mayor of Wuhan said to me, we were very inspired by your Sustainable City 2030 and we want to present to you Wuhan 49, which is based on your Sustainable City 2030. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that's a real ripple effect. <laughs> and I was really pleased with that. So the Chinese, I mean, they've got amazing challenges, a huge population. Um, and, they, and, and they want to bring everyone up to a middle-class standard. And I keep saying to them, leave them on their bikes. That's what we're trying to do now yeah. in Western countries. <laughs> and they all want to have a car, you know. And, of course, they're getting bad congestion too. But... They do make decisions and then they get on and do it, you know, um, and we seem to dither here and talk about it, as you were saying, you're very... In China, the very fast train would have been in, you know, Mm. Um, and I I was very impressed by a city like Portland, um, very livable city. In Oregon and the United States? You know, with very very civilised place with good light rail and good cycleways and and great university centre. it was really interesting. I, I started the work on our, our cycle network at the same time. 
Mayor Bloomberg started in New York, but because he has increased powers and, and is responsible for, for transport there, he could get it in much faster than me, and I was really very jealous of that. But it was just, we had the same goals to make. And, you know, he turned Times Square into a walkable area. Mm. Um, we were both advised by Jan Giel, the, the uh, Danish urbanist, um, and that's really about humanising cities and making them cities for people and cities that are walkable and cities that you can cycle around and cities that have human-scale development and cities that people want to be in. And, you know, young girl used to always talk about you want to make public places uh, where people want to dwell and not hurry through. And so that's what we've been working really hard on in the city of Sydney and that's what Mayor Bloomberg was working hard on in New York. But we just share the ideas and I think that's... And I think um, I, I, I was really, really very impressed when I first became mayor with, with Melbourne's small bars and Melbourne's laneways. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I've now introduced 57 laneways into um, Sydney. And, and um, I, I did a private member's bill in the New South Wales Parliament to allow to get the liquor laws changed to allow small bars. And, that's, and that was about not only providing a more vital nightlife, but it was about providing opportunities for our live music sector. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, you, you, um, I've been very impressed with, it. in Adelaide, the Mayor and the Premier meet regularly and work together for Adelaide. And I think, wow, that's fantastic. Uh, you know, so you, you look at, at what, what's working Subtle. and you, <laughs> you, you, you'd like to uh, have it. But meanwhile, this is where you are at the moment. These are the challenges you've had and get on and do it. And, and Bill Clinton once said to a group of mayors, I really like mayors because they get up in the morning and want to do stuff. And I think that's what mayors do, and, and that's what makes it very ex a very exciting job. Well, that's a good note on which to finish our conversation. I'm sure there are questions. I've overshot a little bit, but I'm sure we've, got, we've probably got about 20, 20, 25 minutes if you want to stay. Um, do we have a question? Yep. Down here at the front. I think we've got a microphone. Yep, we do. Coming. Thanks. Thank you, Clover. Um, it's really refreshing to hear hope, <laughs> if I may steal a Clinton-esque remark. Uh, my question is, how much of the New South Wales situation you're battling is because the rum corps is in the DNA of New South Wales? <laughs> it does seem to be, doesn't it? It, it does It's seem a to tough be. city. Yeah, it's a very exciting city. It's got wonderful people, but it is a challenge. And, um, what is it with carpetbaggers in New South Wales? Oh, oh. Governments yeah. of all stripes seem to associate... Developers seem to have um, huge influence. And, you know, it doesn't have to be like that. When I first became mayor, um, I started getting those phone calls. And I said, well, if you want to talk to me, you've got to talk to the Central Sydney Planning Committee because we make the decisions for development over $50 million, and soon the phone calls dried up. <laughs> and, and the thing about developers, in my experience, is they want to know what what's expected of them and what the, you know, what the standards are. So they know that I'm about sustainability and end-of-trip facilities for cyclists and I'm about excellent design and public art. And guess what they do? They put all of that in their developments. And we've really raised the bar. And I, I don't know if you've noticed when you've been in Sydney, but we've got some really beautiful new development coming through. And that's because we have a design excellence process. And I, we also appointed a design excellence panel made up of eminent practitioners um, and, and all of our own projects and our key private developments all go through our design advisory panel too. And so at the end of the day, um, developers, developers um, get a much better outcome 
uh, in terms of their development. And I can tell you a story about Harry Triggerbuff. I don't know if you've heard of a Harry Triggerbuff. You've probably heard of or seen Science Meriton when you've come to Sydney. He's, a, he's uh, you know, one of our big developers. And I had, I had a few run-ins with him when I first became there. In fact, he sort of even rustled a chair at me at one stage there. <laughs> and we had four, three court cases. Then I won <laughs> Harry Triggerbuff over to Design Excellence. And I have now even opened his buildings. And he is so proud of them. And I thought, that's probably one of the most important contributions I've made to the urban environment in Sydney, that Harry Triggerbuff now does design excellence because he, he does a lot of development. You'll see the Meriton signs all around the place, but he gets good architects now because it's demanded of him. And he's very proud of it now. Oh, congratulations. I, I'm very proud of that, actually. Rapprochement. <laughs> Do we have another question? The inner city of Sydney used to be a big driver of culture as far as the nation was concerned. Film, music, literature, visual arts, all through the 80s, into the 90s. But now, with the changing economic dynamics, that's all been pushed out. Do you think that the inner city, and this is not just for Sydney, but seems to be happening globally, that there'll ever be a revival of that urbane particularly individualist sort of culture that's sort of associated with the inner cities again? Well, um, we held a city talk um, in 2007 and we got um, some of our cultural leaders and it was about cultural life of our city and we had Fergus Linehan who was the director, artistic director of the Festival of Sydney at the time, we had Lizanne McGregor who is the um, uh, director of the Museum of uh, the modern the museum of contemporary art, and we had um, oh, Neil Armfield. We had Neil Armfield, who is currently directing the the, the festival in Adelaide, um, and was the director of Belvoir at the time. And it was really interesting. What came out of that that <coughs> city talk was our big institutions are fine; they get lots of funding from the federal government. But what's really what was really concerning with them, and, and Neil Armford gave a name to it, was the seedbeds of culture. What were we doing in terms of supporting, you know, emerging artists or ensuring we do have that, that, that cultural life in our city? And he, Neil Armfield gave a very good example. He said he, he took a trip to Melbourne um, and they stayed, and they stayed because of the, the opportunities there for live music in the, in the small bars. And... Um, I left that city talk and I said to my research assistant, because um, I was in parliament at the time, I'm going to do a, a, uh, I'm going to do a private member's bill on small bars. We'd been waiting for Bob Carr. He promised it for the Olympics. We'd been waiting for reform. It was a licensing issue, wasn't it? It was a licensing <laughs> issue. And the Hotels Association had such a, you know, such a strong influence on the Labor Party at the time. We just weren't getting licensing reform. They thought that, you know small bars would be a real threat to their hotel operation. And, um, and so I, I put the small bars legislative bill up and, you know, I mean, I was an independent um, and both the government and the opposition said wouldn't support it, strongly support the hotels. And the community came out in droves and said, we want this reform. And so they both backed off. We got the reform. And in fact, our biggest assistant of getting that reform was the president of the Australian Hotels Association, who said 
Um, no one in Sydney wants to sit in a bar and drink a Chardonnay and read a history book. And if all these people wrote in and said, guess what, I do want to sit in a bar and read... <laughs> have a Chardonnay and read a history book. Um, anyway, we got, we got the legislation and, uh, and there has been you know, a revolution in terms of, of, of small bars. And, um, but then the government subsequently came in with lockout laws, so it's a little bit complicated. But the aim of that was to also support opportunities for live music. So we did that. Um, and, and, and the city was very strongly supportive of that, that reform and really promoted it. And we introduced a, a, a cultural policy in 2014 for the city. It was the first cultural policy as such as the city had had. And it wasn't that long after the federal government had cut funding to the Australia Council and, and, and all the groups were just up in arms about losing funding. Um, and, but our policy, the base of our policy was about the seedbeds of culture. So one of the things we've done is, is um, give seed funding to art galleries to enable interest-free 11-month loans buying artworks. And that's been really successful, not only in terms of people buying artworks, but also in terms of galleries. Um, we've, we've created Eternity Playhouse, which is a 200-seat uh, theatre. We're mainly there doing Australian premieres. We have a... We're, we've uh, built a cultural centre just opposite where you can do performance. We've also um, have the Hayes Theatre, which is mainly small for cabaret musicals, but and they're doing mainly Australian works, but also taking things to overseas and doing doing quite well. Um, we have put a lot into making city properties in Oxford Street, William Street, the Cross, um, uh, available for young creatives at a, at a subsidised rent, so that they can move out off the kitchen table and out of their off their bed into a collaborative space to do art and design and, 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 and media. And then when they get on their commercial feet, they can move out and someone else can move in. So, and, we, and we've also um, funded live work uh, studio space for, for artists. And um, we make our uh, council accommodation available, uh, community facilities available for, for rehearsal and practice. Because if you live in a terrace house or apartment, you don't really want to be having to practice a drum or a, or a violin because your neighbours won't like it. Um, and um, we've also been providing a venue manager to help venues that might want to put on um, a, a, li a live performance but don't know how to go about it. And we've also been working on removing regulation, like um, if, if a band wants to park in the street and unload all this equipment, it's not going to get a parking fine. So... All of that work is really about, and, and I, I, we, on an annual basis, we'd contribute about 35 million to, to all those various things and funding festivals. We're, we're funding the, the Fringe Festival, which is happening in Sydney at the moment, which has really taken off. And that, again, is about young emerging artists. So I hope what you're saying, we're turning around. We're working on it. So to ensure that we do have opportunity for emerging uh, young talent in our, in, in our global city. And you mentioned the lockout laws. They've been in place for some time now. How mm. are they... Going. Well, it's totally changed the face of a place like King's Cross mm. um, and um, a lot of that activity has moved out into surrounding areas. We've got some fabulous little bars now in Redfern. Mm. The favourite one is the one you took Gregor Robinson to, which is called the Bearded Tit. It's a really wonderful little bar if you're in Sydney <laughs> and you want an interesting night out just near the station there. <laughs> Thank you. Do we have another couple of final questions? There's 
Uh, yep, just here, hello. That's okay. This was, was the gentleman behind you I was pointing to, but well, oh. that's okay. That's all right. There's someone in the back row too. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I was just wondering about building regulations for apartments and residential places um, and flooding, um, which has been a problem in London. Yeah. Has, does that affect um, the Sydney Council? I, I think all jurisdictions are concerned about building um, materials. One of our problems is... There was legislation introduced into the New South Wales Parliament in the 90s to set up private certification. I opposed it at the time because of the problems it would cause. And because private certifiers can sign off on the construction of a building and they don't have to make their information available, um, it is very hard to know what the answer to that is. But we're working, on, we're working hard at trying to be able to give a reasonable assessment of it. Um, but... The private certification, which has had strong support of conservative <coughs> governments, is the problem there, and the unaccountability of private certification. Yeah. Well, they, it doesn't. You would think that 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 a situation like the fires in Melbourne and in London would lead to an examination of why would something like this occur. Well, that's the reason. Total lack of accountability. Up the right up oh, sorry, the back. Yeah, no, just here first and then... Good, good afternoon. Um, this is a mischievous question, but it's also a serious question. What comes after the Clover Moore independence? Assuming you uh, um, emulate Reagan and go till you say 80, you might get another, <laughs> another couple of terms, but um, is there a succession plan? Um, how do we keep the momentum going and the vision uh, moving forward into the future? Uh, when the New South Wales Parliament passed legislation to say I couldn't be the, the member and local local member and, and, and mayor, um, interestingly, um, Alex Greenwich uh, appeared. Um, my husband thinks Alex is my miracle. Um, Alex had been a supporter, had been a supporter, and had handed out. But you know, lots and lots of people help at elections, and you, I don't individually know every single person, and I hadn't. I didn't know Alex when he first approached the electorate office, but my staff had been with me for quite a long time, said, you, you must meet him, you, I, you know, I think you'll think he's very good. And I did meet him and I did think he was very good. But what Alex did was he then came to the electorate office every Friday um, and he was given material by my staff about all our major issues. And they didn't tell him what the issues were. He took the material away and he <laughs> studied it. And then he came back and they asked him questions about it. And he, by the time he... And then he ran on my ticket for a local government election. By the time he was elected, I endorsed him. No one knew him at this stage. I endorsed him and everyone was very angry about what the state had done. It seemed really unfair and it was because I'd been re-elected four times to do both jobs together because they really worked well together. Um, but he... he he was elected, he kept my staff, he's doing a brilliant job. You, you probably know him because he's one of the leaders of the marriage equality campaign. Very handsome too, I've got to say. That's probably going to, going to help in a, in, in a city like Sydney. Um, but he, he's, he's my succession plan there and, and we, I work very closely with him. That made the parliament very angry that I got someone really good in there to replace me as an independent. <laughs> they wanted, to win the, they wanted the, the Liberal Party to win the seat. I'm already working on a succession plan for Sydney and um, three or four of the councillors that are working on my team now uh, 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 could be really good contenders. Um, 
for, for mayor. And what I, I, I looked for for the last, most recent team that I took to election, um, and even though the government had passed legislation to give two votes to business and one to residents, which was another way of trying to get rid of me. I mean, the only person that's probably had two pieces of legislation passed to try and get them out of public life. But um, I got a 10% swing for that election. But I had a new team and I'd really focused on looking for people who were really, really good and really had a passion for the city and really had a knowledge about the city and, and would want to be involved, um, hopefully long term. And that, that's the team I'm working with now. So if I get run over by a bus, um, my husband hopes I won't be doing it till I'm 80. But, <laughs> but I, don't, I don't know if he wants me to be at home either. I think it would <laughs> be too exhausting for him. Challenges, challenges of retirement. I think we've got time for one last question, which is up the back. Yes, I arrived a little late, so I'm not sure if you've touched on this already, but um, as national security issues come to the fore after events in Paris, London, Barcelona, do you see Sydney having to change its thinking, maybe in terms of planning or even its ethos, in terms of maybe more bollards or cameras or random bag searches? Hopefully not like in uh, The Handmaid's Tale where men walk in black walk around with machine guns, but uh, do you see things changing in the, in the future? I think it's inevitable that they'll change in most cities, and I think it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, often when I'm at events that have thousands and thousands of people, I think, you know, it would be terrible if something. I just, I just think we're all aware of it now, but we've absolutely got just got to get on and do what we need to do, you know. Um, I, I, I think that's really important. I was, the mayors were invited to. Um, to a mayor's conference at the same time the national leaders were meeting in Paris. And we all went, and, and the mayor of Paris was really pleased we all went, and we all gave her very strong support, and we all went to those memorial sites where there, there'd been those terrible attacks. And um, the whole thing was about, we've got to get on and do what we, we, we need to do. And um, yes, security's increased, and um, we, we'll change the way we do things in Sydney, I think it's inevitable. But the good thing is that we've spent a lot of time on creating a really elegant suite of, of street furniture and with really nice bollards. So, um, uh, you know... Aesthetically pleasing bollards. Aesthetically, yes. Alexandre's designed them, the leading architect. Um, so we, we, will, we will... I mean, we have worked very hard... I've worked very hard for 14 years as mayor to make Sydney a livable place and to make it a place where people want to meet on the street and where we want street life. And we're going to continue to do that. But we'll be thinking in terms of safety too, as, as I think we all need to. But we don't want to change Sydney being a, a people's place. Would you please join me in thanking the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Kevin <laughs> Yes, I can only echo that, Karen. I think this has been a very wide-ranging discussion. We've touched on affordable housing. Uh, we've touched on homelessness, security, arts and culture, all kinds of things that just show the complexity of running uh, a city the size of, of Sydney. And I, um, I think thanks to your insightful questions, Karen, we've really covered the gamut today. <laughs> Um, and a few from out there. Uh, and a few from out there as well. And uh, it just strikes me that...
Clover, if you admire the get on with it attitude in other jurisdictions, I think Sydney's in very good hands with your own get on with it attitude. So yes, please join me in thanking both Karen and Clover. Thank you all for coming. And I should just say that we have two more in our Saturday paper, Month of Saturdays sessions. The details are up here. Next week I'll be at the National Gallery talking to Eamon Flack about the arts. And the week after that I'll be at the National Museum talking to Mick Dobson about Indigenous affairs and recognition post Uluru. So please join us at both of those uh, and have a nice week in between. Thank you. <laughs> They're interesting. It's a good series, isn't it? Yeah, it is good. Mm. I think it's good. Mm. You're getting good responses. Mm. Right? Mm. Stimulating conversation. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Karen. Really thank you. Really good. Thank you. I mean, I know we've all over the place. Yes. Hopefully, it was not too. Well, that's what cities. Cities. Well, I